from the book of Acts, chapter 11, starting with verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us he, how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. From the book of Revelation, chapter 21, starting with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? A reading from the gospel of St. John, chapter 13, starting with verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. 
a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I am so thrilled to be with you all today. Um, It is a special day um, as we celebrate five years as a church. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more um, about this throughout the... um, throughout the morning and then also at our lunch today, but uh, I'm just thankful to be here. I'm thankful for God's faithfulness. I look back on um, all that God has done over this time. Um, I'm thankful for you, (laughs) for each and every one of you, the opportunity to be in community with you. Um, This week, I've had some people reach out to me and just say certain things about what they mean, you know, what the church means to them and has meant to them over the years. Some who go to church here now, some who used to go to church here have moved away or different things like that. But but then I always feel like I want to respond with, you don't understand (laughs) what this means to us, what this means to me and to Ashley and to Lucy and to be in community with each of you, not just you as a collective, which that is true, but also thinking about each of you and the opportunity to know you and to be part of your lives is just amazing. Um, As I was reflecting this week over just wanting to the the texts and then what I wanted to share with you all today, I thought about the nature of our community. and, And one of the things, there's a lot of things that are kind of unique and special about our church, but one of the things that stands out is that we've always kind of tended to be a church for those who um, are kind of on the margins, who have questions about faith, who have wrestled with certain things. Um, Some will kind of, before they have given up on church altogether, they'll say, well, at least got to try sacrament first. (laughs) Then they come here and they'll stick. Um, And then some of you, and I don't know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think some of us, it's because we're okay with questions We're okay with uncertainty in some sense of going, I'm going to take a step of this, even though I don't know that I'm fully there to say I believe it yet, or I don't know that there's certainty about this, but yet we believe that God's grace meets us there, that God is with us and the Spirit walks with us. Um, And God has been faithful in that. And I think our Acts text today really speaks to this idea of those who are on the margins, The church in Acts, the early church is wrestling with this idea of who gets to be part of God's family and who doesn't get to be part of God's family. How does this work? We're in this season of Easter tide and this is one of the major themes of Easter is that everything has changed. All the rules change. All the rules about our identity or how we think about ourselves, how we think about who we are, all of that changes. All of that shifts in light of the gospel, in light of the resurrection. And in the Acts text that we have today, which we're gonna just park in this Acts text, this story that we read today, but Peter, who is the primary visible leader of the early church, this guy, Peter, you know a lot about him already. And he's faced with this challenge, this question, this surprise. And this challenge that Peter is faced with is very political, okay? We have to see this, all right? There's a lot of politics going on in this surprise that Peter has and this vision that he has. It's also really delicate. There's this cultural moment that's happening in the earliest church where there's all these sensitivities on high alert. So if you use the wrong language or you say the wrong thing about your faith or about your politics, everybody's gonna get real defensive and everybody's gonna respond. There's like a tinderbox going on, just ready to explode at this point. Language matters, postures matter, positions matter, everything matters. 
And the early church is caught in this crossfire. They're just, Jesus has risen from the dead and there's this group of people that are gathering together and the Holy Spirit is moving. And the early church starts out almost exclusively Jewish. It's a Jewish offset or a Jewish community that's emerged in the early church. And for these Jewish Christians, there's this like increasing persecution from the Romans. There's this restless revolution among the Jews who want to rise up and overthrow the Romans. And in the midst of this, we have resurrection. In the midst of this, we have the Holy Spirit moving. It's like everything could explode at any moment. So don't make the wrong move. We don't know, I don't know that we know anything today about political, religious, or cultural sensitivities, do we? This is a foreign thing, right? Like, we don't know anything about maybe saying the wrong word in a conversation that might put people's defenses up, do we? Things that seem to maybe used to be neutral words, now everybody puts their guard up. If you say the word immigrant in any context today, it sets things off, doesn't it? If you talk about building a wall in any context today, Lucy the other day was um, playing with Play-Doh and she kind of she put together, you know, this Play-Doh and she said, dad, look, I built a wall. And part of me wanted to go, don't, don't say that, don't say that, right? <laughs> but, but no, she's building a wall. It's fine. There's a bunch of them in this room, right? Um, or if you say the word healthcare. If you say the word Chick-fil-A, if you talk about Starbucks cups, and then I've been told straws are a thing now too, right? They carry so much emotion. They carry tribalism with them. They carry defensiveness with them, don't they? To understand a bit of what's going on here, we have to step back and look at the history of God's people. So I want us to kind of put on our history lenses for a minute and actually put ourselves in this story. So way, go way back to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, okay? We've got this family that God calls, the family of Abraham. And God calls them specifically. He chooses a specific family. Why? Because he wants to be near to his people. He wants to be near to creation. And the ultimate goal is that his glory would fill the earth. And the way he chooses to do that is by choosing one family that would then shine his light and his glory in the world. He wants creation to be restored as he intended it to do. And so he chooses this family and he tells them two specific things. First of all, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. First thing he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. I have chosen you for something specific, you. And then the second thing is you will be blessed and all nations will be blessed by you, okay? So you'll be my people, I've chosen you. And then also you'll be blessed so that you can share that blessing with the world. It's both of these things at the same time. God calls this people, later called Israel, to embody who he is in the world to shine his light. They live as his people. They put him on display. And this is important that we know this. They didn't earn their way into being God's family. They didn't do enough good things, creative things, special things to get God's attention and earn his love. This was a gift of grace. They weren't extra special because of their behavior. God called them out of his grace. And in doing this, after he called them out of his grace, God lays out a pattern of behaviors for them that would form them as his people, okay? So he chose them by grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't do behaviors to earn his grace, okay? He chose them specifically. And then he says, I want you to be my people, to shine my light, to shine my blessing in the world. So do these things that will shape you and form who you are as those people. 
They already are his people, and now they're called by these patterns of living to live as his people. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I always notice if I ask you if it makes sense, you're not going to say no, probably, but, but I hope it does. So, and the reason for this is in the world of the Old Testament, Israel was unique. Why were they unique? They were unique because they worshiped one God. Most of the pagan world worshiped a bunch of gods. So they had gods for everything. They had gods who created. They had gods who were for fertility and for the crops. They had the God of the sea. They had the God of the sun, all of these different gods. And Israel is incredibly unique because they worship one God. We call that monotheism. Okay? Now, that's not strange for us today. We have that in common with the Jewish people, with, with Muslims. Christians are monotheists. We believe in one God. But in the ancient world, this was super strange. Why would you just have one God when you could have all the gods? And God knew it would be incredibly challenging for Israel to live in this kind of world and stay true to worshiping the one God. That would be really hard, okay? So he gave them these forming laws, these laws that would literally shape who they were by their pattern of behavior. Now we don't think about the laws this way very often, do we? We think about laws more like breaking the law. Like I was worried today when I drove here that I didn't have my seatbelt on and I was gonna get pulled over because I'm breaking the law, right? I'm gonna get in trouble. Britain learned that a few weeks ago. Um, but, <laughs> but that's not how these laws really worked. It wasn't about just breaking. It wasn't like a constitutional or kind of a law. It was forming. It was these guidelines put in place to shape them and form them. The best way to think about it is rules that you put in place for your kids, if those of you who are parents. Right? You don't give them guidelines in order for them to, hey, if you obey these guidelines, you're going to be part of the family. No, they're already part of the family. But you don't want them to grow up to be little dictators, right? You want them to be formed and shaped in a particular kind of way. And so you put these guidelines, you put these rules that form you and that shape you. God knows that the world is full of sin and brokenness and counterfeits. So he gives this law to his people in order to shape them and form them as his reflection in the world. Okay. This is how we have to think about the laws of the Old Testament. Laws designed to communicate and to inculcate who God is in his people. That's what the laws are for. And central to all the laws for the Jewish people in the Old Testament were three things. Circumcision, Sabbath, and food laws. Circumcision, Sabbath, and food laws. Circumcision is this super physical, very intimate reminder that Israel is different, okay? That they are unique. They didn't worship in the same way or live in the same way as the pagan nations. So this is this personal, intimate sign that they are different. And as I read this week, apparently people were naked a lot more often in the ancient world. So this actually made a statement to other people, okay? That they were different. Secondly, Sabbath. Sabbath was this weekly reminder that the universe doesn't depend on our work, that it depends on God's work, that God is working even when I'm not working. And then the third thing was the food laws. What they ate was different than all the pagan nations. They could eat certain animals and not others, and this pointed to their uniqueness. They worship one God, and the type of animals that they ate reflected that. And then they had to be careful not to eat animals who were sacrificed to pagan gods because they might get into worshiping these pagan gods. And then there were other laws. So for example, they, weren't, um, they were told not to wear clothes with mixed fabrics. 
So almost all of us would be in trouble <laughs> in this room, right? We look at the 50% polyester or whatever, I'm gonna get all these ratios wrong, like all these mixed fabrics, okay? But why were they, they doing that? Well, it was because they were being taught, don't mix your worship with the worship of other gods. So even in what you wear, in what you embody every single day, it's this reminder, we worship one God, not many gods, okay? So that's how that worked in the ancient world. Also, they were told not to intermarry with other nations, Sometimes we look at this and we go, is that xenophobia? Well, no, the, the reason for that was because God knew if they married people of other nations, they would bring the gods from those nations into their marriage, okay? And he wanted them to stay true to the one God, okay? So they are unique and they're supposed to live uniquely. So he reminded Abraham, you are my people and there are these laws. But there are other laws that remind them of the second thing, that they're to be a blessing to the world. So think about this. They were not to glean the edges of their fields. So when they harvest all their crops and they go and they bring them all in, leave the edges. Don't harvest the edges because you're supposed to leave those for the foreigner, for the one who's outside and passing through because you're supposed to be a blessing to all nations. In fact, that's the reason they weren't allowed to trim the edges of their beards. I'm trying to take this literally, okay? They couldn't trim the edges of their beards because it was a reminder that they're not to glean the edges of their fields. So as they live every day, they're going, we're supposed to be a blessing to the world, right? I'm gonna keep growing this to be a blessing to the world. So they're living and embodying that reality in who they are. Does this give you maybe a different perspective on the Old Testament law? It's not about just trying to earn something or earn something through behavior. God has given these forming laws to shape them. These, and I think God realizes we are liturgical creatures. And that means we do habits over and over again. And whatever it is we choose, we find certain habits that begin to form us and shape us, okay? We need our fidelity to God at the core of our being and that's the way God chooses to do it. But here's the thing. Of course, the pagan nations rejected the one true God in the Old Testament, but Israel rejected God over and over again as well. Israel didn't live this perfectly. They rejected God. They turned to foreign gods. They turned on one another. They rejected both their call to be unique and special and different and also their calling to bless the world. So Israel perverts their calling. They remember, and as we get to the point of uh, the time of Jesus, we see that Israel remembers something about the fact that they're special, okay? They remember that they're unique and they're special, but they forget that they're called to bless all nations. They forget that reality, that God's grace has called them in the first place, not their behaviors. And they forget that they are called to bless the world. So, they begin to use God's laws as these rigid boundary markers to separate them from pagans. And then the laws become more and more complex, way beyond what God intended. And they begin to demonize the other side. They forget to include and to bless the sick. So they exclude people who are sick in their body. They exclude the sinful, the tax collector, the prostitute circumcision, Sabbath, and the food laws become a way of excluding rather than a way of forming and blessing. The laws were intended for forming and for blessing, and they become a way of excluding. The family that was to embody God's glory in the world becomes a tainted reflection of that glory. 
Now, at this point in the story, we would look at it and we would probably go, well, at this point, if I were God, I would give up. <laughs> I would say, I tried to give you laws. I tried to do this, but God doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on his people. No, because of his free grace and his great love, God steps into the world. He takes on human flesh. He becomes the one true and faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. And Jesus in his life, he goes to the outsiders. So he goes to the sick and he heals them and restores them into community. Think about that. When, when Jesus healed your body in the first century, if you had leprosy or a withered hand or whatever it was, when Jesus healed you, he not only did the physical action of healing you, you were now restored into the community. Okay, so he goes to those people and he heals. He goes to the pagans and the, and the uh, sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He goes to Gentiles and begins to heal them and bring them into the family. In other words, he does what Israel has been called to do all along from the very beginning. And this is a threat to both the political establishment of Rome and the religious establishment of the Israelites. So what do they do? True love steps into the world, healing, restoration, fulfilling of the call of Israel, and we kill him. That's what they do. In Christ, all of the sin of the world, the evil and the wrath of the pagan nations, as well as the evil and wrath of the Jewish leaders is hurled on Jesus on the cross. And in taking that on himself, in the resurrection, he conquers it. One of my favorite parts of a road trip is those little green signs that tell you exactly how many miles to the next town. You know what I'm talking about? I've got like a few levels, right? So it's like, this town is, is here. This town is this much farther, right? I love that. I, and now we don't really need them anymore because most of us have like GPS and like our, our phones and all that stuff, but I still love it. I go, okay, this is 15 miles to this town. It's telling me the next way to go. Well, when you reach your destination, you don't look back and curse the signpost and say, man, those were wrong. I'm here now. I don't need those anymore. No, they were necessary, but they're no longer necessary because you're there. You're at your destination. When resurrection happens, the rules change because we have reached a certain destination. We've gotten to a point where God is present with us in a unique way and the world has changed. God's glory is on full display in the person of Jesus. So that means that the laws that pointed to Jesus are now fulfilled in him. Does that mean that formation is no longer necessary? No, no. But it means that God has done something decisive in the resurrection something game-changing, and our formation now always has to be Christ-centered because that was God's final word. So everything that we have to do, that we do in our lives, looks like Jesus or should look like Jesus, should point to him. So think about it this way. Circumcision pointed people to the fact you're part of God's people now. Well, now God is here in Jesus. So circumcision was like a signpost, one of those green signs but now we've arrived at our destination. So that's one of the things in the first century that the church is wrestling with is, do these Gentiles have to get circumcised? Do they have to be part of the Jewish family? And one of the things they begin to realize is they go, this signpost is no longer necessary, that Christ is here. So quickly we began to see that baptism replaced circumcision as the marker of being God's people. 
Now, baptism is still a physical thing. It's still a physical habit, a physical reality, but it's not restricted to any ethnic group. It's not restricted. It can't be exclusive in that kind of way. Then the Sabbath, Jesus heals on the Sabbath and he makes it clear the Sabbath cannot be used to bind people because the Sabbath was always created to liberate people. So if you use the Sabbath to separate yourself from other people and say, you're not observing the Sabbath right, you're not part of the in-group, you're going against what the Sabbath was created for in the first place. And so that's why Jesus is called the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the one who fulfills that Sabbath reality. And then these food laws that were designed to form the Jewish people, they can't exclude either. Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. And he's saying, we have to learn to eat together. If we're gonna have these outsiders, if we're gonna have these Gentiles as part of the family, we gotta learn to sit down at the same table and share food together. So we gotta do away with these food laws that were signposts, but they're not the ultimate reality. What we see in our passage today is that God begins to mess with the Jewish Christians' previous categories. That God is here, Jesus is God in the flesh, resurrection has happened, and the Holy Spirit is moving among outsiders, among Gentiles. These people who are not circumcised, these people who work on the Sabbath, these people who eat the wrong kinds of food, yes, even them, the Holy Spirit is working with them, is active with them. Peter's opponents are a group of people who they want all of the Gentiles who become Christian to be circumcised. And they want all of them to follow the food laws. So if you read the New Testament, and there's a, lot, there's a reason why I've spent a lot of time on this, this is the backdrop of the entire New Testament. If you read the New Testament, the biggest conflict is, can Gentiles be part of us without having to go through all these cultural hoops, okay? And this has relevance for us today. I'm gonna tell you why here in just a second. But so... So, there's, so they're saying the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be part of the family. So Peter has this really trippy vision. And in this vision, there's this sheet that comes down and it has all the no-no animals in it. So all the animals that he was taught growing up that he can't eat, all of them are on this sheet. So there's some reptiles in there. There's all these kind of things that he's not supposed to eat. And God commands him to eat them. Wow. This week on Friday, I had a surprise. Um, my parents texted me. Um, my dad texted me on Friday morning and said, hey, what are you doing today? And I thought he was in Tulsa. And I said, well, I'm just, I'm just working from home today. And he said, oh, I wanted to see if you could grab lunch. And, and it took me a minute, I was disoriented. I said, okay, where is he? I said, I put it together because I'm really smart. Like, oh, he must be here. <laughs> so I said, are you here? And he said, no. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, I'm at the Nashville airport. <laughs> so we got to have lunch together. So there's this disorienting reality. Well, take that and times a million, okay? The early church and especially the Jewish, well, it is Jewish early church, is totally disoriented with this kind of a vision, all the signposts, all the things that we were taught our entire life, you're telling us that all that's changed, that the rules have changed. All the people we thought were outsiders, we couldn't even go into their house. We shouldn't even be near to them. You're saying that now the Holy Spirit is working with them and they can be part of our family? Really? 
So Peter says to Jesus, no, I can't. I've never eaten this, food, this no-no food before. I've never put this unclean food in my lips. And Jesus says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Mic drop, right? <laughs> this is a story about food, but it's not about food. Yahweh reminds people that the calling of God's people has always been to bless all nations. In Christ, that is happening. The nations are being blessed. The food laws were signposts, but we're at our destination. A new age has dawned. I loved when the church in Charleston, the church that had the terrible mass shooting, the Sunday that they regathered all together, they said, the first thing they said from the pulpit is they said, the doors of the church are open. The doors of the church are open. That's what this means to everybody, right? So Peter goes to this guy Cornelius's house, who's a Gentile, and he finds the Holy Spirit is working with Cornelius. And Peter, you can imagine, is disoriented, and he has to get his tribalism out of the way. He has to put it out of the way. He, he has to get his filters about who's clean and who's unclean out of the way. And this allows Peter to share the good news of Jesus with the Gentile Cornelius and with his family. And it says, all of them were baptized. What if we saw every person, every ethnicity, political persuasion, and religion, not as an outsider or an other, but a person ripe to have an experience with the Holy Spirit? And even a person with whom the Holy Spirit might be already working. <laughs> this is an opportunity that we have as the church to be both faithful to the story of God, truly faithful, committed, not wishy-washy about it, faithful to the story of Jesus, and at the same time, radically open to the Holy Spirit's embracing work. Can we do both of those at the same time? Not a lot of churches are able to do that very well. Um, every person you meet is already in conversation with the Holy Spirit. The guy at the gig who is so burned out on church and he has only negative things to say. He is ripe for the Holy Spirit's activity in his life. Your doctor who is practicing Hindu, she is made in the image of God and ripe for the activity of the Holy Spirit. The person who's on the opposite side of the political or cultural debate, God whispers to you in that moment, I'm working with this one. I'm working with them. And I think the challenge for us is that our culture tells us we can only do one of these things. We can, only be, we can either be radically faithful to Christianity or we can be inclusive. Can only be one, we can't be both. Our culture says we can't be both, but somehow that's exactly what we're called to be, who we're called to be. As we follow Jesus with all of our heart and we seek to be close to him, as we practice our faith and we look for the work of the Holy Spirit, I believe he breaks our tribalism. He breaks our clean and unclean filters. He breaks open our categories. Now, God is, has always called a people. This is how God works. God calls specific community. That's how God has worked. Um, in fact, as you look at the Bible, God doesn't just call individuals. Anytime he calls an individual, he calls them in the context of a people, okay? That's how God works. And that community that God calls is called to a specific way of living, a particular way of living. And that's what we're about. 
And simultaneously, that community is always called to bless the world and to be part of his healing in the world. We have been invited into God's story in order to share the invitation. We have been loved in order to love. We have been changed in order to be part of bringing about change. And this is so critical in a world that wants to reduce those who believe firmly in things like the creed that we're about to profess or who gather to church every Sunday. Often they wanna see groups like that as more just another tribal group, another voting block, another affinity group. We are the people of the resurrected Christ, the people empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that means we are a people of great hopefulness. If we want an image of the world that we're headed towards, we can look at our Revelation text that was read today. At the very end of the Bible, we see God's future world being made right. We see his glory that he's desired from the very beginning being fully experienced here at the end of Revelation, his rule and his reign. So in verse one, it says that in God's new world, there's no more sea. Was that bad news for those who like to surf and swim, right? That there'll be no more sea in God's new world? What's up with that? No, the sea in the ancient world represented all that's chaotic and dark. All the sea monsters come out of the sea. (laughs) All the yucky stuff, all the chaotic stuff comes out of the sea. So what this text is saying is anything that is attempted to thwart God's glory and God's plan and God's love in the world won't be there anymore. It'll be right It says, in God's new world, there'll be no disorder. And then it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, just to kind of firmly plant this, write that down. (laughs) For these words are trustworthy and true. Up until now, we have looked at the story from the beginning. We looked at Abraham, the story of Israel, all the way to its fulfillment in Jesus. But sometimes the beauty of the Bible is you gotta start at the end. Um, This is the kind of world that God is making in Christ. This world where he wipes every tear from their eyes. What are your tears today? Where are the places that you have felt like an outsider, excluded from God's plan? What if if we knew (laughs) the core of who we are, that God is the one who wipes the tears from our eyes? This is who he is. And what if the church were the tear-wiping people? Sometimes Christians are known as the tear-inducing people, okay? But what if we were the tear-wiping people? What if when there's a tragedy that represents the lingering presence of sin, what if we were the ones who were right there to wipe tears away? What if our neighbors, when they're attacked because of their race or their creed, what if we were the ones who stepped in just to wipe the tears away? And if we serve a God who makes all things new, we can hope God has already begun that process and that work so we can be part of putting the world right. All right, I'm almost done, I promise. The last thing, you've all heard me use this metaphor before of the church 
as the garden of the resurrection. Like, like I believe that's what the church is. We're a garden of the resurrection in a place and time. I loved it when we moved here. I didn't really love it, but I, I, I mean, I love that we moved here, but this part I didn't necessarily love. There's concrete everywhere. So we try to return each week, we, tr- we return our communion elements to the earth. And I gotta like walk a long ways to find earth, right? Like where is there earth? There's lots of concrete. But I felt like we had this picture when we first moved in here that right in the midst of all the concrete, there's like those plants that kind of just bust through, <laughs> that that's kind of who we are. We're like a garden busting through in a world of death right? That's what the church exists as. Each congregation, each parish is a garden planted right in the middle of concrete, right in the middle of thorns and thistles, whatever metaphor you prefer. And that's not always flashy. Sometimes we're taught that the church should be like creeping ivy, (laughs) that we just take over the whole neighborhood, that we step in and we just get bigger and bigger and we just take over the whole neighborhood. But most often we're just a garden. We're a sign of life in a world grappling with death. And my hope this season is that Sacrament Church, we would learn more fully what it means to be his people, that we would be formed in a particular way, shaped in a particular way, and that's hard work. It means discipline. It's not easy. It means dying to self. It means that we do practices that don't always have tangible outcomes. I know that when we come here and we say the creed every Sunday, you're not getting goosebumps every time we say the creed. I know that, right? I know that that's not just firing you up every single time, but there's something happening in us. It forms us over time. And if you want evidence of this, look at the kiddos in our community. When I hear them belt out the doxology at the end of service or the sanctus, which is just the holy, holy, holy that we sing, you know, when I hear them say the Lord's Prayer, and, and did you know every single one of the kiddos in our church, except Willow, but she hasn't, doesn't talk yet, has, has come up and asked me about communion, what that is, what we do with it. They're interested in all that stuff. None of y'all ever ask me that stuff. Right? <laughs> Just kidding. And second, part of what it means to be God's people is that we're always looking outwards. That's the good news of Jesus. We are formed in a particular kind of way to be a particular kind of people. Not only do I hear the kids asking me about our Sunday morning liturgy or memorize stuff, I hear them talking about serving the homeless or being kind to their friends. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Now, as adults, this practice often happens more slowly because we have a bunch of other narratives about ourselves and about the world that we're working through, okay? but it's still happening. It's happening under the surface. So I've been praying as we step over the threshold of the next five years today, I pray that we would seek to be a faithful people. And in doing that, I'm not afraid of saying I'm a Christian. (laughs) I am a follower of Jesus. That's who I am part of this story. And I hope we'll become more Christian this year, not less. I hope that we will become more Christian that we would wrestle well, that we would learn more and we would be formed by love. And then I also pray that we would be a blessing people, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to break open our tribalism, break through the tribalism in our world. We need it. Oh my gosh, we need it. To see people how Jesus sees them and how Cornelius, Peter saw Cornelius. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church for this garden of the resurrection, for this sign of green busting up through the concrete. 
Lord, I thank you for the ways that you desire to form us in your image. Kind of like we want to shape our kids. We want to form them in a particular way that you desire for us to be something in the world. So you create these patterns for us. And Lord, thank you that all those patterns look like Jesus. They're, they're a better way. They're a better story. And then Lord, I pray that you would mess with us this year. That you would surprise us that you would create conversations in our world that we don't expect, that we are disoriented by, and we go, wow, the Holy Spirit is at work there. May we become more Christian, and may we, in becoming more Christian, may we be more blessing to our world. We trust you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.